0: So this is Reformation Sunday. Um, I'm not going to give you a traditional sermon. Rather, I'm going to tell you something of the history of the Reformation, why and how we got here. And I'm going to ask you to try to remember, well, two dates, two dates, and you pass the class, three dates, and you you get extra brownie points. The first date is two days from now, October the... 31st. 500 years ago, the Reformation began. And we, and all Protestants, are a product of that Reformation. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background, a little bit of history. As I say, you only have to think about two dates, 1517, and I'm going to give you another one. And this will give you a sense of the history of the Christian Church. This is actually the whole history. You ready? Don't be too scared. And uh, if I'm going slow, you just kind of speed up, Pastor, and see what happens. So, if you read the Bible, and as Christians we do, you'll notice that the New Testament begins with four Gospels Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells us the history of Jesus, tells us through a series of anecdotes and stories and illustrations. What Jesus said, what he did, who he was, how he related to people, what he claimed. And Jesus gathered together 12 disciples, and as we've been seeing as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, he trained them to be his replacement, to be his representative in the world, to be his church. And the Gospels end with Jesus' death and the resurrection, where he returns to his followers. So that's the, that's the beginning of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then the fifth book of the New Testament, the book of Acts, tells us what happened next. It starts with Jesus returning to the Father. He is glorified. The book of Acts opens with the apostles standing there in amazement. Just as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit descends in flames onto the apostles. Peter preaches the first sermon in Jerusalem. 3,000 people become Christians that first day. And then the book of Acts tells you what happened to those Christians, what happened to the church. Almost immediately, they were persecuted. Their teachings about Jesus upset people. Uh, Israel was based on an understanding of uh, God that Jesus had challenged. And so the early Christians are persecuted. And they scatter around the Roman Empire, basically around the Mediterranean, uh, from Jerusalem as this persecution uh, increases. And at that point, the Roman Empire is at its, almost at its maximum. It goes as far west as Spain, as far north as Britain, It covers the uh, northern shore of Africa and goes as far east as Israel and uh, Egypt. And so Christians scatter around that entire area. They're persecuted to greater or lesser lesser extents in different parts of the Roman Empire. But the big change happens in the 300s. And here is the second date you should remember, three eighty. 380 years after the birth of Christ, there is a, a conflict over who should be Caesar, who should be the Roman Empire. And Constantine, he's about to battle for the uh, empire, has a vision. And in the sky, he sees the cross of Christ, and he sees uh, these, these words, in this sign, conquer, conquer. The sign of the cross. So he tells his soldiers to put the the uh, sign of the cross on their shields. They actually put two um, Greek letters, Chi and Rho, for Christos. They go in a battle and they win. That's in 312. And suddenly the emperor is favorable towards Christianity. And by 380, that's the date you should remember, the Roman Empire becomes Christian. So from persecution, in 380 years, Christians have gone from being scattered and persecuted to becoming the official uh, religion of the entire Roman Empire, the whole. Constantine did something else. The Roman Empire had grown too big to manage, and so he um, opened another administrative center for the empire in Constantinople. Which bears his name. And so the Roman Empire has two centers, Rome and Constantinople, because it's just so big no telephones, no texts. It was just too, it was expanding too big for one center to manage. And that's the way things stood until the fall of the Roman Empire. And as the Ro- Empire falls, it took about 100 years, especially in the West the only transnational, large-scale organization left was the Christian church. And it followed these two administrative centers. You have a center of Christianity in Constantinople, and you have a center of Christianity in Rome, and it's really the only game in town. And so for the first millennia, you have the Christian church united and has become the most potent and powerful entity in the world. Now, in 1054, this is the one you can remember if you want the extra points. 1054, so about a 1,000 years uh, after the birth of Christ, there was a split between Rome and Constantinople. And there were a number of issues, a number of silly theological issues. But the main reason was Rome was claiming to be the premier church because it was founded by Peter. You know, Jesus in the Bible says on this rock, Peter's faith, he will found his church. And so Rome starts claiming that it is the boss, that it is the most important church in the world. Now this upsets the other church, the other churches. Constantinople, the church there, was founded by Andrew. The church in Antioch was founded by Peter and Paul. The church in Cyprus by Barnabas. The church in Ethiopia by Matthew. The church in India by Thomas. By the way, when I went there, the the, uh, Indian Christians were very proud of this fact, and actually many of them claimed it was the first church. The church in Edessa, which is Syria, by Thaddeus. The church in Armenia by Bartholomew and the church in Georgia by Simon. So the apostles had been busy. They had spread around the known world, the Roman Empire. They had planted churches, and they were resisting this idea that Rome was the boss. And so 1054, there's a schism. That means a split. You are no longer invited to each other's tables. It's like an excommunication and you have the Eastern Church, which becomes the Orthodox Church and all the different Orthodox Churches based on these different national churches. And you have the Western Church, which is the Church that becomes the Catholic Church. 1054 Orthodox Catholics. Now that gets us to the Reformation. In the West, The Catholic Church dominated Europe. It really was the only game in town. It controlled entrance to heaven. It told kings, princes, and nobles what to do, who to marry, when to go to war or not go to war. Rebellion against the church meant you were going to go to hell. It was a scary business. And so the church started attracting people for reasons other than faith. If you wanted to get ahead, if you wanted to have power, if you wanted to get wealth, you joined the church. You became a priest or a monk or a nun, and it was a way to guarantee your future. And so divorced from faith, the church became very corrupt. In fact, if you read about uh, the Borgias, who for a time held the papacy, they would have these incredible uh, parties and even wild orgies at the Vatican. It's hard to imagine priests showing up for wild orgies, but that's as bad as it got. And it scandalized the world. One of those people that it scandalized was Martin Luther. This is where we get to Martin Luther. He was a a nervous German monk. He was terrified by the idea of hell. And he was so afraid of overlooking a sin that his confessions used to last six hours sometimes. Drove his confessors crazy. There's only so much sin you can do in a monastery, and he would confess for six hours. He he didn't like what was happening to the church, and so he turned to the Bible. He was a student of the New and the Old Testament in the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, not in the Latin Bible that so many people used back then. But he went back to the originals, Greek and Hebrew, and became a scholar. In fact, he translated the Bible. And he was looking to the answer for his terror What does God want of me? How should I live? What is Christianity all about? And this brings us to the first of what I'm going to call the five solas of the Reformation. Solo means or, or, uh, only. And the Reformation has been summarized by scholars in terms of five Solo Scriptura, Solo Fidei, Faith, Solo Gracia, uh, Grace, Solo Christus, and Solo Deo Gloria, solely for the glory of God. And so I'm going to look at the Reformation using these headings, but they come from Martin Luther. So he turns to scripture, he's studying it in the original languages, and what he sees is completely different from what the church is teaching. The church had grown up among illiterate people and was surrounded by all kinds of superstitions and folk religion, all kinds of things that are not in the Bible, worship of Mary and the saints, purgatory, a whole series of things. So he begins to read scripture This is from Paul. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is not just a collection of human wisdom, not just the result of clever human writers, but rather, look at that expression, God breathed. The word that breathed, is also the word used of the Holy Spirit. So the writers of the Bible, yes, they were human beings, just like us. But when they were writing God's words, they were inspired. They were filled with His Spirit. And so the words of the Bible are guaranteed not by the skill or intelligence of the writers, but by the presence of the Holy Spirit. The Bible is God's deliberate communication and revelation of himself to human beings. And that's why it is worthy of our study. And that's why the Bible is where you go to learn what God wants of you. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For a prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So that's the Bible's self-understanding. The Bible is the word of God. It is God's direct communication. And remember, Luther has looked at the church and found it lacking, found it corrupt. So he turns to Scripture, to the Word of God, for the truth. The Word, the Scriptures, become the foundation of the Reformation. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean to you and I? Well, it used to be in the church. Most people were illiterate. They would go to church. The only educated person would be the priest. He would have studied somewhat. He had certainly learned Latin, a little bit of Latin. And the Bible of the time was written in Latin. It had been translated into Latin and had been used by the church in Latin. And so most of the time in church, you were listening to people, a priest, talking about a book that you had never read, probably never even held, and certainly could not understand. In essence, the church and the priests and the Latin Bible stood between ordinary people and God. You had to go to the church to go have a relationship with God. And Luther challenged that. The Reformation challenged that. Everyone can have a relationship with God if they have their own Bible. And providentially, the, the um, printing press had just been inv- invented in Germany by Johannes Gutenberg. He, he uh, invented that right before Luther was born. And it meant that it was possible to print Bibles for ordinary people. And one of the first things that Luther did was to translate the Bible from the Greek and the Hebrew into he translated it into German he was a German monk in uh, England the Protestants translated it into the King James version of the Bible that we still have so that's the first great pillar if you will the first great move of the Reformation the first great reform get rid of the priests get rid of the Bible in a foreign language put the Bible in the language of the people Give it to the people for them to read and study so that they can have a relationship with God, they can understand what God wants of them, without this intermediary, without priests, without the church's teaching. This was extremely radical at the time and upsetting to all those priests, of course. What did he find in the Bible? He found what are probably the the greatest theological principles that he gave to the church. Sola fedi and sola gracias. Faith alone and grace alone. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us all to do. Think where Luther was coming from. He was a monk, and he had been told and trained that the only way that he could please God was to do things, to pray, to do good works, to go around sacrificing himself to prove that he was good enough for God, confessing for six hours, to try to purify himself. Exhausting. He used to drive him and his fellow monks mad. And yet when he read the Bible, he doesn't see any of that. What does he see? Faith in what Jesus has done, not what we do. Our relationship with God is premised on faith in what Jesus does in his life and on the cross. Not what we do in our life. Theologically, the term is justification by faith. We are made right with God. Think of how on a sheet of paper you justify the text. You can justify it to the left hand margin or the right hand or to the center. We are lined up justified with God by faith in Jesus alone. Nothing else, no church. No good works. No running around fearful about whether our lifestyle matches God's holiness. And by grace, what Jesus did on the cross, he did freely. God did it out of love. You can't buy that, it's not up for sale. God's salvation through Christ is a free, gracious gift that is not deserved and cannot be earned. And this is where Luther could find rest. Remember, he was haunted by the possibility that he wasn't good enough for God. But by finding his rest not on what he did, but what on Jesus did, freely, he could finally rest. And enjoys relationship with God, rather than having it filled with terror. By the way, this, hopefully, is the way you hear me preaching. It is the what has shaped my preaching. How, ideally, do I preach? I go through the Bible, line by line. It's called expositionary preaching. I don't come to you with some general context or concept of some stuff in the news and download dogma on you, hopefully, and politics and fashion. I go back to the text and we go through it line by line and my job is to teach you what does it mean in its context? What are these words saying? Why were they written down? That's the first point. The second point is how is that relevant to us today? Applying the truths of Scripture to our lives. And third, how does this point to Christ? Because it's all about Jesus. We're going to look at that in a moment. Sola Christus. That is the job of a preacher, to apply the Word of God to my life and help you apply it to your life so that we see Christ more clearly and recognize what he has done more clearly. By the way, it's the reason that we do the Lord's Supper every week. When I first started here uh, as a pastor, I was nervous about my preaching and I was worried that I would not successfully point people to Christ. And so I and actually all of us have formed the, the beginning of this church. We decided to do the Lord's Supper every week. So even though I might be a terrible preacher Everybody would do business with Christ during the service. And by the way, we're going to do that. So don't despair if this is going all over your head. So we've seen three solas. Sola scriptura, you go to the Bible, not clever people, not any institution, to discover who God is and what your relationship is. Your relationship with God depends on faith. And grace alone. No work. But here, and perhaps the most important and one of the most distinctive things about the Protestant Church, it's all about Jesus. It's all about our relationship with Him. The corruption of the medieval church arose primarily because. It was more interested in worldly power, amassing worldly power and wealth than it was in saving people. It taught that you had to have a relationship with the church to go to heaven. And of course, the opposite, hell, was terrifying. And so people would pay money to the church during their life, and often at the end of their life would give all their money to the church to avoid going to hell. And so the church became incredibly rich and the institutions of the church became incredibly rich and this was corrupting. People joined the church to get access to the wealth, not access to Christ. But that is not the way it's meant to be. Christ alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world from him, through him. Contrast this idea of Jesus with that teaching that you have to pay money to the church. Christ did not go to the cross because he was paid. What, after all, could we give him that would be worth that? Rather, he did it out of love. And it was Christ's sacrifice on the cross alone that gives us access to the Father, to God, to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, not the church, not what we do or don't do, or any human doctrine or practice is going to be good enough. The only way to God is through Christ. And it's the reason, by the way, that Protestants in general focus on Jesus, focus on their relationship with him, focus on Mm -hmm. prayers in Christ's name, pray to our Father, our and Jesus' Father spend so much energy on Jesus' life and ministry. So Luther challenged all that. His biggest problem, his biggest challenge to, to Rome was his criticism of the way it raised money. And they had this amazingly clever scheme. Through folk religion and goodness knows what, the idea arose in the Catholic Church that there was a place called purgatory. There is no mention of purgatory anywhere in the Bible. Complete invention. But it's a genius invention for making money. And the idea is, when you die, if you're not perfect, you don't go straight to heaven. You have to be purged of your remaining sin. You go to purgatory. And you have to be there as long as it takes. And it could take thousands of years. But the church said, if you pay us money, we've got so much holiness in the prayers of all our saints. We have so much access that we will pray for you or for your loved one in purgatory. And they will, it's like a get out of jail free card. They'll go straight to heaven. Not only could you do this for other people and things that you've done in the past, you could actually do this for things you were going to do in the future. So if you wanted to go off and be wicked for the weekend, you would go to the church and you'd pay your money. It was a printed form using a new printing press. You'd sign your name and they'd put an amount of money. You gave your money, you'd do whatever you wanted. It's a great scheme. And there used to be uh, indulgence sellers traveling all around Europe to the markets of Europe selling indulgences. And of course, if you are just about to die why not just give all your money to them? An amazing scheme. It's how the Sistine Chapel was paid for, in most of the Vatican. Um, Luther, looking at the Bible, says this is nowhere there. This should not be. Christ went to the cross freely. The church should put no barriers in the way of going to Christ. And so famously, and this is where we get our date. 1517, October 31st, Tuesday. At this time, um, Luther was lecturing at the Wittenberg University. He wrote 95 reasons that the practice of the Catholic Church was not biblical. His famous 95 theses. And it was the habit, back then, when a scholar had a thesis, equivalent of a PhD, you would nail it to the cathedral door as sort of a public proclamation. And that's what Martin Luther did. And it caused an explosion. The church did not like this idea. He was attacking its great money-making scheme. And so they called him to recant the famous Diet of Worms. You meant to say worms, by the way. Diet just means a, a gathering or a court. And in 1520, three years later, the officials of Rome come to Martin Luther and demand that he recant his 95 Thesis or he's going to be excommunicated. He's going to go to hell. And if he had recanted, there would have been no Protestant Reformation. But he didn't. In fact, this is what he said. There are a lot of people there. It's all recorded. Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in councils alone, since it's well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. May God help me, Amen. And that began the Protestant Reformation. And notice what he said. Unless you can show me in Scripture where this practice has its warrant, I'm not going to do it. And I'm not going to repent against criticizing it. And there was an explosion. In fact, there were many explosions. There was a series of wars. Uh, The results were not pretty. But it began with Martin Luther. Well, let I me mean, now to go to the, the last of the five. Sola di gloria. Solely for the glory of God. Because what Martin Luther did was redefine or show how the Bible wanted Christians to live. The job of every Christian is to glorify God. That's it. In fact, one of the confessions, one of the creeds of this time puts it beautifully. What is our chief purpose? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the sum purpose of human beings. What does that mean in practice? Well, Luther championed the idea that this distinction between priests and nuns and professional clergy and everybody else was a false distinction. Everyone is equally valuable as a Christian. Peter calls it the priesthood of all believers. We are all together ministering in God's name, not the people up front, not the people running the church. And to emphasize that, you know, he was a celibate monk, He married a nun, and they had six children, and he loved married life. In fact, one of his quotes is this, There is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company, than a good marriage. The distinction between that and a, a nervous, wretched monk in his cell worrying about his sin, he actually became a very happy man. He celebrated ordinary work. It used to be that people who were involved in, in trade or physical labor were considered lower than those who were serving God, who were praying, who were ministering the church. Luther denied all that. One of his lovely quotes, A woman, a woman washing her baby's diaper is as pleasing to God as a pious monk at his prayers. Ordinary work in God's world is as valuable as anything that happens in the church. This, by the way, is the origin of the Protestant work ethic, the idea that work was healthy. Before this time, work was for slaves. Work was for people on the lowest lungs of society, for the peasants, for the ignorant. Luther transformed this, and the Reformation transformed this, into an elevation of work as being a good in itself. He said every Christian is called priesthood of believers with a purpose, that all of us have talents and unique abilities that allow us to serve God. That's why he translated the Bible into the local language, German, so ordinary people could learn about God and their relationship. He translated hymns into German and wrote many hymns. He created a hymnal so that ordinary people could worship God in their own language. And he changed the way that Protestant pastors act. No longer priests wearing ecclesiastical robes, facing God with their backs to the congregation, being an intermediary, but wearing, and this is meant to be and is, an academic robe. The idea the pastors are now teachers, their job is to help ordinary people learn about their relationship with God, not intermediaries representing the people to God. He also, and this is something we're about to experience, he changed the idea of the Lord's Supper. The Catholic Church taught transubstantiation, the idea that in the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine literally change their substance. No longer bread and wine, but change into the substance of the body of Christ. So they can only be handled by priests, so that they are worthy of worship, so they become these sort of magical elements that can heal people. Luther said no. The Lord's table is not something that is done separate from the people in a foreign language, but rather the Lord's supper is celebrated in the language of the people and not with the priest facing God with his back to the congregation, but with a table in the center as the family table of God's people. Now there's a lot more that can say about the Reformation. Hopefully you hear a glimpse of it glimpses of it every week when you come to our service. But it all began with Martin Luther picking up scripture, taking it seriously, and saying it is more important for me to follow my God and his teaching through his word than it is to agree with the policies of that time of the universal church. The Reformation spread around Europe. It was brought to Britain. John Knox brought it to Scotland, created the Presbyterian Church. Many of those Presbyterians came to America to settle. And here we are, the Presbyterian Church in America. All started by a nervous monk in his cell worried about sinning. There's a lot more to be said. There's some great movies out right now about this, by the way, I encourage you to look at them. But we are part of an amazing tradition And one last thing. The church is always getting corrupt. If you look at church history, if you look at the Bible and the history of God's people, corruption is a theme. People start out in relationship with God excited, filled with faith and joy, but the world steals that away and the institutions become corrupt as a result. Our job as Christians, as members of this church, is always to put our relationship with God first, to put the Bible first, to know the Bible, and to hold our church and people like me up to the standards of the Bible. And that's what makes a Presbyterian church. Let's pray together.